Martin Luther set the model for marriage in the vicarage. When in 1525, at the age of 41, he married a nun, Katerina. I was always told the story that uh, Katerina and some other nuns had accepted the Reformed faith, or the Lutheran faith, and had uh, left their, their uh, nunnery and were promised husbands. Of course, an ex-nun had no future in the 16th century, uh, and uh, she was the last one. And Luther fulfilled the uh, obligations and married her. Um, uh, it's a long time since I've read the story. I can't remember the details. But I know he says some wonderful things, Luther. One of them, as he said, was, one learns more of Christ in being married and rearing children than in several lifetimes spent in study in a monastery. He did have a way with words, did our Martin Luther. The ideas were so important. Family life was a great joy to him and a great burden. And he discovered it. And we'll come back to more of his wisdom in a few minutes. But his marriage set the model for all of us. But let's return to the biblical framework. For our first study showed us marriage in the garden, marriage ideal, marriage in the hopes and the very purpose and construction of the character of marriage that the Creator had in making us male and female and uniting us in one flesh. This, of course, though, was before sin. Before sin altered the nature of our relationship and our relationship with God and our relationship then with one another. For God created the man as his image and glory from the dust of the earth to work the dust of the earth and the woman as the man's glory for the man and from the man from the man for the man as his helper suitable to him they were naked they were unashamed as they were one and they were united in their flesh to commence the next generation and thus multiply and fill the earth as one humanity however life is never the same after sin. Notice the pattern by which God created, the sin came, and the judgment followed. That is, God created the man, and then he created the animals, but found none of them were suitable until he could create the woman. The temptation came from the animal to the woman to the man. Notice, it's the man's responsibility. It's never called the sin of Eve. It's always called the sin of Adam. Who was the first to sin? Adam was the first to sin. Though she took the first mouthful, he was the first, it was his responsibility, his failure. And then, so that's why God speaks to the man first, and then to the woman, and then to the serpent. Uh, he speaks to the man, and the man does the, the, the double removal of all responsibility, typical of males. You know, the woman who you gave me. You know, nothing to do with me. It's everybody else's fault but myself. The woman, she points to the animal, the serpent. God then judges the serpent, then he judges the woman, then he judges the man. The, the ordering of the passage, apart from its literary style, is a theological statement about the nature of relationships within God's created order and the nature of sin. For what they ate was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And 
we, we really can't cut that phrase down. An apple won't do. Uh, because it's an important phrase to understand the very nature of sin. They wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil. You then have to go back and think, well, how does God know good and evil? It is not by tasting evil, that is not, it's by determining evil that God knows good and evil. Knowledge is an interesting word, it means all kinds of things rather than just information in my head. Right? Adam knew his wife. That's not information in his head. That's had a sexual relationship with her. Well, the way God knows good and evil is that he determines good and evil in this world, not arbitrarily, but in reflection of his own very character. Notice how Satan works. First thing he does is question God's word. Did God really say? And then he denies God's word. No, that won't happen. And then he questions God's motives and intentions. God says that for this reason. Because he doesn't want you to become like him, knowing good and evil. And he, he, he offers this fruit will make you like God. But the person he was offering it to was already like God. She was created in the image and likeness of God. But now I'm going to become like God in a different way in a new way, in an expanded way. I'm going to become like God, knowing good and evil. That was one way I didn't know, I wasn't like God previously. And so the woman adds to God's word. She's the first legalist. She said, we're not allowed to touch the fruit, which God didn't say. And then she sees the tree as desirable to the eyes and becomes the first idolater. And then sees it's desirable to make her wise in knowing good and evil. Man received the fruit from her hand and ate it. And their eyes, remember, were opened. And they knew. They knew what? They knew they were naked. You say, well, how didn't you know that before? Well, because there wasn't the concept of nudity in a world where you didn't know good and evil like God. But once you know good and evil like God, you can know what you can do to each other and you can be ashamed of yourself. This opening of the eyes to see the nudity of each other and the covering of up, this is not the, this is not the judgment of God, that's yet to come. This is just the nature of sinful life. We are now filled with shame and with fear we now can see what we can do to each other and need protection from each other. The world changed the moment humans sinned. Notice God's judgment then. The serpent is cursed and to be defeated in his enmity with the woman's seed. The woman's seed, it's interesting, it's not her egg but it's her offspring, her male offspring. Her role in creation to fill the earth will be her salvation. But now... Well, now it's pain in childbearing and conflict with husband. The man has pain and frustration in his gardening. And again, the way we're created, the way we sin, and the way we are judged are all connected in. It's as we become Christians, we reverse back to the way we were created. That's the direction we've got to go. But you've got to understand the way we are created 
and the way we've sinned and the way of judgment to do that. For the woman, she is created to fill the earth with him. She's created for marriage. And the judgment that falls upon her is in the very heart of the thing she was judged, that she was created for, in the pain of childbearing. The language here in the text does not mean just the confinement pains that come, which are, are, are great enough. Uh, that's a, that can be terrible, terrible pain, as excruciating a pain as people experience is in actually having the baby but the language is broader than that the language has to do with the whole nature of the reproductive system <coughs> that is the the pain of endometriosis i always pronounce it wrong uh, thank you good and the pains of, uh, of just going through there there are women who monthly the pain is too intense for them to go to work not every woman is like that, I know, but there are some, I've known them, who three or four days a month are just bedridden with pain, which is awful. But there's the whole menopause and the changes that happen. The woman's body goes through processes over the whole of their life that are connected to the issue of their reproductive process. Men, we just get old, you know. I mean, yeah, we change, bag, sag, bald, but it's nothing fundamental to us that takes place. For our sisters, there's change after change that takes place, nearly all of which are negative, <coughs> all of which are not to your choosing. And so we wind up with whole hospitals given to gynaecology, but we don't have hospitals given to andrecology, you know, specialising in men, if they are, I guarantee there are some andrecologists somewhere, but it's such a small specialty, it's not a, it's not a concern. But women, it's the pain in childbearing, it affects all of life. The childlessness of some women is so terrible, it's so awful. The bearing of children, the, the nursing problems that come, the vulnerability of being a young mother with child, the sleeplessness that goes with the whole... Our sisters go through an enormous amount. That is part of the judgment of God that has come upon us. But you see, the judgment of God comes at the woman, at the very centre of her being. But the other centre of her being is her relationship with her husband. And so now, there is conflict with the husband. Just remind the words, the words are a little tricky, to know how it's going to be said but uh, it says there in uh, chapter 3 your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you there is this conflict between the two that is inherent in our sinfulness and the judgment of God upon us it can be read as her desire will be to rule over her husband but he will master her it can be her desire sexually and personally to be with her husband, but he will now master her. Either is, either is bad. The first one is reflected in the desire of sin to have uh, Cain, but Cain has to master sin, you see in chapter 4. The same kind of language is used there in chapter 4. But either way, it's conflict. Instead of loving unity, there is now conflict. Instead of the beauty of having children, 
there is pain and sorrow in the process. The miscarriages. Miscarriage is such a personal thing, an intimate thing. I, I, I can theoretically understand it. Uh, you, you know, I'm a man. But what I, what I found is when it happens, women speak to other women about it and say, you know, the, the one, two people that you have the intimate confidence with to speak and you say, well, I've had this miscarriage. And nearly always the woman says, oh, yeah, I had three. But they don't know about it until it happens. <laughs> when it happens, then you discover all these women have had this miscarriage. It's, it's a very, it's a much more common experience than is discussed, <laughs> but it's a very painful experience. It's an awful experience. Most of the women remember the date when the baby was due. <laughs> I mentioned that because the men need to remember it. If you knew there was a due date, put it in your diary. Uh, because when it comes that due date, another sorrow happens, another inch of grieving that only mothers really experience. Women, my sisters go through so much more than we men ever even imagine in terms of the internal pain that comes at the very thing they're created for. And the very relationship they're created for becomes the place of the greatest hurt and pain. That's very sad. The man. Well, he gets pain and judgment too. <laughs> but his pain and judgment is the very nature of his being. Work. No longer is work pleasurable. Work is now grind. Work is now hard. Work is now distorted. The frustration of the gardening, it just doesn't work for us. Here in the drought season, it's overwhelming, isn't it? And what happens, and you've got to be careful of it all the time, is, is the problem that men despair and suicide, don't they? That's just what happens. If I can't work, I can't live. If I can't look after my family, if I can't provide for them, if I can't protect them, it's just overwhelming for men. Women work, but the relationship of women to their work is not the same as the relationship of men to their work. For men, it really is the consuming passion of what their life is about and for them to find frustration at every level is overwhelming and in their city context I presume it's here in the country as well uh, unemployment is crippling to men unemployment is sad for women but it's crippling for men they really they do not cope with it uh, in the same way and so God's judgment attacks us at our very key point. But look down to the end of chapter 3, for there's an extraordinary statement in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. That's extraordinary. The devil told the truth. Well, he didn't. He's the father of lies. <laughs> he, he lied, but he's a very clever liar. He covers his lies with truth. I don't want to teach you how to tell lies, but let me tell you something. If you want to tell a lie, put as much truth around it as possible. <laughs> because the truth is the believable bit. It's the sugar coating <laughs> that will get the poison into the other person. No, I'm not giving lessons on telling lies. That's what he does. The truth is, they do become like God, knowing good and evil. The lie is, they are totally unsuitable to know God, know good and evil. Now, 
lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God said the day of you eat this you will surely die. That day we died. We have lived death ever since. We are now alive in the reign of death. And we are all, in fact, dead. Because we are not fit to be the determiners of good and evil. And so as to stop us, God kills us. The, the only illustration I've come across which helps people grasp it is when you, when you cut the flower in a garden and put it in a, in a vase, the moment you cut the flower, you actually kill it. It's dead. You put it in the vase, it opens up and as it opens up it gives out a lovely fragrant and you get all the imagery of life from the flower in the vase but actually it's dead and if you don't believe it's dead just hang around for a while you know because then the leaves fall and then the petals fall and they all scrunch up and then actually the water stinks if you leave it there long and not that we've ever left it like that but the water stinks and death is you you, you killed it then you and I were snipped from the garden. We, we have been born dead and we are dead. And you just hang around long enough and you'll find out. And as you grow, you know, in these early years where you see these lovely children all around about, they're growing up to be more and more beautiful and wonderful and you get to 18, 19, 20 and you're, you're you know, in the full bloom of youth, as they used to say. And then there's the rest of us. <laughs> it's just the, the long, slow slide down, which actually is a, a convex, uh, convex line, as best I can see, because it goes faster towards the end, as every bit falls off slowly, and then faster until... But we've always been dead, because we are inappropriate people to know good and evil. Death, therefore, makes life meaningless, which is what our Ecclesiastes book is about. And so people now try and make up their own meaning, which is what human morality is about. It's dead people who are facing a totally meaningless world trying to create meaning because they know good and evil. They're, they're, that's who they are, and they can't actually know God's good or evil. So when we look at marriage in the world, we're not simply looking at the Creator's design and plan, but the sinful corruption of our marriage and the attempts of cultures to create some meaning for what is in death meaningless. I mean, the easy place to see it, and I'd turn your attention to, is 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. Now, Here's Paul's advice to fairly sinful and forgiven Christians. You remember chapter 5, chapter 6 about sexual immorality, both of those already, and he turns in chapter 7 to answer the questions they're asking. And in chapter 7 he tells of the joys and the cares of marriage and also the recovery of messed up marriages. Because he's writing as a missionary to a missionary situation. 
And when you're in a new Christian situation, when you're in a situation where people haven't grown up with Christian culture, their lives are really messed up. And so they then become Christians. There's the baggage. What are you going to do with the baggage? My brothers and sisters, you're going to deal with more of this in the years ahead. It was easier in the ministry that I was conducting, uh, we were conducting years ago, because people didn't have the baggage that they now have with messed up lives. Um, it's like, you know, when you're in Africa and you see polygamists converted. You can't tell people to put away their wives, but they've got all the problems from multiple marriages. You see, we're now coming into this problem. The chapter comes as one of the Corinthian questions about touching or having sexual relations with a woman. It's not about getting married. Uh, one of the translations is wrong that way. It's actually touch. Should a woman touch? Remember, some at this time would forbid marriage. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, there are people who forbid marriage. Um, and Paul is dead set against that. That's the work of the devil. Paul is on the mission field with new Christians who are very confused. And his response comes in several sections. Verses 1 to 16 talks of sex and marriage. Verses 17 to 24 is the key to the passage, that is contentment in God's sovereignty. And then chapter 20, verses 25 to 40 is whether to marry or not. So we turn to the joys and cares in 1 Corinthians 7, which uh, we read of in the first of the third of this section. So the joy of marital sex are clearly in sight in verses 1 to 5. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. See, Paul tells those who are married that they should have sex with their spouse to provide for each other's need and never to deny each other. That is, you must never use sex as a bargaining chip in the conflicts within your marriage. Rather, you must continue to provide for each other's needs rather than your own. I spoke to an older saint when I was a young man, before I was married. Um, and he, he told me that his wife had a very low libido. Um, I've forgotten how on earth we got into this conversation. I was about 17, he was about 45. And uh, he's a lovely Christian man. And he said to me, yes, his wife had a very low libido. So he tended to only have sex once a month or so. And I said, really? He said, yes. He said, I'd prefer to have sex when she enjoys it than when she endures it. That always stuck to me, you know, as a line. Because there's something fundamentally right about that, isn't it? That is a man who loves his wife, who is providing for her and her needs rather than for himself and his needs. I'm not, I'd never met his wife. 
I'm not quite sure, well I'd be embarrassed if I did, but I'm not quite sure what I would say to her about providing for his needs. But if both partners have, both spouses have that kind of mindset about each other, it'll work. You'll work out something, won't you? Uh, It also, of course, my brothers and sisters, changes over life, doesn't it? The libido levels. And you need to be constantly working with each other in this area to care for each other. Often I have found the young mothers have just been too exhausted to think about it, too psychologically traumatised by the childbirth, to there's a whole range of reasons, but sex gets kind of turned off in their 30s. And you need to have the, the gentle encouragement which only can come from actually raising the subject because we don't talk about these things. So actually say, your husband's still there. He's, he's still number one. I know the children are terrific responsibilities, but they're two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Nine. How many you have? I don't know. But he's still number one, no matter how many you add on afterwards. And your provision for him sexually is still a priority in your life. And if that means you actually have to stop and reorganise life so that you're not so exhausted all the time, even if you need to talk to him about doing more to help you so that you won't be too exhausted, if that means you actually have to plan rather than now just kind of in, in the first flush of youth be able to suddenly be carried away at the drop of a hat, that now you actually have to plan, well Thursday night's going to be a date night and we're really going to make something, well then so be it. Because what happens in the sexual deprivations of the 30s turns out to the marital disasters in the 40s and 50s. Over and again I've talked to people whose marriages have collapsed and uh, uh, the men has gone off in adultery and the like, usually sometimes it's the woman. And it's nearly always that 10, 15 years ago sex got rarer and rarer and rarer and rarer and just didn't happen. And when it's not happening then lo and behold, the, the secretary at the office, the youth worker in the church, the whoever it might be, understands how he feels. It's a disaster. And so Paul's advice, you see, it, it, it's so, what's the word, crude, it's so crass, it's so unromantic at that level, it's come together again so Satan won't tempt you. You've got to help each other with the temptations that are all around about us now. And they really are all around about us now. It's no longer considered taboo in our society. And so for the men who go to work and go to the offices, for the women going to the offices, it's a disaster in terms of the freedoms and the accesses that are available to them. And so it's really important that we invest in our marriages Paul says you don't always, there are specific purposes for which he's, he's making it as a concession, not a command, because there are, there are times, there are moments in which you have prayer, you may choose not to have sex, but by agreement, not by deprivation. Right? Notice, notice in this a few things, the positive attitude to sex in marriage. Right? Do not let the world tell us that we are anti-sex. This is a very positive attitude to sex. 
Notice secondly, the recognition that women have sexual needs. It's right there in the text, isn't it? Notice thirdly, the mutuality of authority. The wife has authority over the husband's body, as the husband has authority over the wife's body. The way in which the anti-marriage people speak is men own their wives. And they put it in the category of slavery. But if you read what the Bible says, no, no, the woman owns the husband's body as much as the husband owns the woman's body. The mutuality of it is perfectly clear. And we didn't need the 20th century sexologists and feminists to teach us about mutual sexual needs and drives. We only had to read our Bibles. It's been there all along in that woman-hating writer called Paul. Right? People so misrepresent our apostle. He's our apostle, remember, unless you're Jewish. They misrepresent our apostle. They misrepresent his teachings. And then having misrepresented it, they attack us for it. But they attack us for their misrepresentation of what's been said here. If we want to have happy marriages in our vicarages, then we've got to have lots of sex. That's fairly straightforward, isn't it? Right? I think we might knock off now and go home. <laughs> like as soon as a, if this was a sin in motion, we could win that one fairly easily, <laughs> I would think. But the cares of married life are also spelt out for us in the third section, verses 24 through to 40. For when discussing whether to get married, Paul points out the difficulties that come with marriage. Paul's advice is because we're living in troubled last days, you'd be best to remain single. He speaks of the present crisis of verse 26, which I don't think is a local temporal one. I think it's the, the world, because he says in verse 29, the time is short, and verse 31, the world is passing away, and its present, its present form is passing away. This advice from Paul, though, is pragmatic in its nature. Christian living is difficult in a hostile world when you have attachments and responsibilities of family life. He's not saying it's wrong to marry. In fact, he goes out of his way to say there's no sin in marrying. He's just warning of the consequences of marrying. So look down to verse 28. Verse 28, but if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you of this. There's no sin in marrying. And if you're denying the virgin the opportunity and privilege of marriage and motherhood by endlessly postponing your marriage, he says then, by all means marry. You're not sinning by doing that. But there is an advantage in the single-minded devotion to the Lord. There is an advantage in worry-free living in a fallen world by remaining single like the missionary Paul himself. And so he concludes in verse 38, So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does even better. This, message, this, this, message, uh, this passage rather, is a marvellous liberation from mariolatry. Uh, not from mariolatry, that, but mariolatry, got an extra R in it. Uh, the sense that life without marriage is, is not life. The sense that my life will only be meaningful if I do marry. Or the Bridget Jones idolatry, I must marry idolatry. 
It, it's an important corrective. Great joy in marriage and it's a wonderful thing. But there are living for the kingdom which is greater still that you can be doing. And these verses challenge us to live for the kingdom of God rather than this world. Even over something as basic of this world, namely marriage. Now we mustn't push the matter too far and forbid marriage as some false prophets have done under the influence of evil spirits. The whole chapter is quite clear that sex is not wrong or evil, but contrary to our contemporaries, sex is not everything. It's not the be-all and end-all of life. So many people have now put too much emphasis, no that's not the word, too much uh, investment in marriage as if all my needs are going to be met in my marriage. <coughs> the weight of marriage cannot bear it because all our needs are not met by our spouse in our marriage. That is why you need the Lord Jesus Christ in your marriage to put a corrective on it for it's in Jesus Christ that your needs are met rather than in your marriage and so much people have put this terrific and Christians do it in our desire to have a holy marriage in our desire to raise the subject of marriage as being very important and it's right we invest so much in the marriage that two sinful people living together even regenerate sinful people cannot provide what is being required so here in verses 39 and 40 he advises other widows not to marry whereas in 1 Timothy 5 he tells younger widows to marry those who are active sexually active in verse 8 he tells to marry verse 8 is a small problem to us by the way uh, to the unmarried and widows I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am but if they cannot exercise self-control they should marry for it's better to marry than burn with passion um, in that book, Pure Sex, the Pure Sex, Tony and I wrote a section on this little passage that is wrong. Um, uh, an English clergyman who came and studied at Moore College for a year uh, has written a little book called God and Sex, God, Sex and You. Uh, Richardson, John Richardson. It's a brilliant little book and he's right, we're wrong. So I just need you to know that. Um, we just didn't do our Greek work properly. Uh, we have our mistakes but you can admit your mistakes and help people uh, not help by the translations they're all wrong too John Richardson's right that's the only place I know where I can see it's right um, it's not if they cannot exercise self-control it's if they are not exercising self-control see he's writing to a missionary situation where people are living in sexual immorality what do you say to people who are already what do you say to the de facto what do you say to the, the couple? They've got his children, her children, and their children. What do you say to them? What's, so people living in ivory castles of university world don't realise what it's like to be on the mission field and confront the realities of people's lives, which are really messed up. And his advantage, Paul's direction is, if they're in that mix, get married. That's what you've got to do. Sort out. Right? That's, that's the recovery. It's better to marry than to burn. The with passion is an added on. It could mean better to marry with, but burn with, than burn with passion. It also could mean better to marry than go to hell. <laughs> Don't know what it is, but adding with passion 
pushes your reading in one direction. Um, and all the translations do that kind of... I've got a funny feeling the Holman one is different but, uh, and is better, but I can't remember. Um, however, what it's saying here is Paul is saying to widows, verse 8, get married. 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 8, he's saying to younger widows, especially younger widows who are still sexually alive, to get married, have children. Right? To older widows, he's saying, well, you're better off being single, but if you choose to marry, then you're not sinning, provided you do it, of course, only in the Lord. But what about if we've already got this mess, things already mixed up? Well, if you're sexually in a union, but not married, verses 6 to 9, what if you're divorced, verses 10 to 11? What if we're married to non-Christians, verses 12 to 16? He gives those pieces of advice. And it's important to, to grasp hold of Paul's situation because it's our situation and it's going to be more and more our situation in the days ahead. Where you've got people who are married to non-Christians, what should you say? What do you say? I had a couple... I had a bloke ring me up and he threatened to punch my, punch my lights out. Um, uh, he wanted to come and see me. I punched my lights out. That's a, that's a lovely invitation, really. Um, and of course, he was a builder, uh, and these hands have never seen an honest day's work. So the idea that a builder was going to come around and punch my lights out, I thought this was. So I made the time. Um, he'd been living with a woman for years. She'd now been converted. Her whole life had changed as a result of the conversion. And now she was really nice to him and kind to him and gentle and, and doing all the right things. And he was really cranky because it had ruined his marriage, as he kind of deemed it. And I said, well, how come having a nice, kind wife who's thinking about you and being kind all the time, how does that ruin? He says, well, she makes me feel guilty because I treat her like dirt, but I now feel guilty because I can't. She used to treat me like dirt. I treated her like dirt. I was happy. But now she's being all nice all the time. I can't do what I want to do. You see, so, and so he was really cranky. He really was very cranky with me for seeing his wife turn into a nice woman. Now, this is a perverted world you're in, isn't it? But this is the mission field. This is where we're at in this world today. Anyway, they weren't married. They were in a de facto relationship. So I talked to her about, well, should she want to stay in this relationship? And she said, yes, he's my husband. Uh, you're not married? No, he won't marry me. And I said, well, you've got to view it as your marriage then, if that's the case. You know, he doesn't want to leave. He wants to stay even with this nice woman. And so, what do you do? Do you say, no, no, you should leave him because he's not married? Or should you stay? Well, 1 Corinthians 7 is your passage, isn't it? When the unbeliever wants to live with you, how did you get into this state in the first place? Well, they did before she was converted. And so she continued in that relationship. But she had difficulty in some other churches because when they found out they weren't married, they didn't want her to be a member of the church. Well, I thought this is, this is a little difficult when the woman would be quite happy to marry. She viewed him as a husband. And he viewed her like dirt. It was awful, really. There's a marriage. People live in mixed up situations that you need to deal with. Now, at this point, the vicarage has to be completely different to the world <laughs> in order to help the world. You've got to know where you want to go. You've got to have the sense of the created order that you're heading to try and promote 
but at the same time it's recovery ethics isn't it because you're dealing with people who's so far away and you can't just turn the turn a tap and change it doesn't work like that and so if you're in a mixed marriage the advice is you stay there you don't initiate separation but you don't stop separation either if they want to walk out because you're a believer well then you let them go which sadly is what happened to that couple some years later okay well what about marriage in the rectory let's get back here or the vicarage or wherever well remember Luther and Katerina here's some Luther quotes for you there is no more lovely friendly and charming relationship communion or company than a good marriage yeah, good man, you see. There's a, there is a truly converted monk. <laughs> he says, the first love is drunken. When the intoxication wears off, then comes the real marriage of love. That's important. Our world doesn't get that, doesn't understand it. If you look up the marriage guidance people, they'll tell you about a thing called limerence. And limerence lasts around two or three years when people are absolutely besotted by each other, but it only lasts two or three years. There was an actress, Farah Fawcett Jones, who went through man after man after man, and she said, I've, I have fallen in love with falling in love. It's that limerence, that drunken state. But the stuff that makes marriage work is much more substantial, as we know. That kind of love comes later. He get, another one was, union of flesh does nothing. There must also be a union of manners and mind. Of course, that's why the whole business that the, the baby boomers will say, don't marry young, is because their union of flesh was only flesh. And it didn't work. They got married at 19 and 20, and they now blame getting married at 19 and 20. No. <laughs> Getting married like out of sexual passion and nothing else, that was the problem. The age, our daughter married at 19, a 19-year-old man. Mind you, it caused terrific tensions between Helen and me on this subject as to whether I should or should not have allowed such a thing to happen. But, you know, they're both 45 now and as happy as Larry with each other. It's got nothing necessarily to do with age. It's got to do with the nature of the love we're talking about and not marrying like the pagans. Another Luther one. The Christian is supposed to love his neighbour and since his wife is his nearest neighbour, she should be his deepest love. That is a failure to read the Good Samaritan, but it's a good, it's a nice line anyway, isn't it? The purpose of marriage, he wrote is not to have pleasure and be idle, but to procreate and bring up children, to support a household. This, of course, is a huge burden, full of great cares and toils. But you have been created by God to be a husband or a wife, and you may learn to bear these troubles. It's a very realistic view of marriage, he's got to see. It's to have children, and having children's a burden. It's a toil. It's difficult. It really is, isn't it? You know, you're away here. Order number 28 is ready for collection. Order number okay. 28 is ready. I will get that. Um, you, you, 
you see it here. I was actually speaking against the charismatic movement at the church at St. Ives when they first had radio mics in back in the, I don't know when it was. Only at that stage, the taxi drivers were on the same radio frequency. And so all through the sermon, we had these glossolalia coming out as I was preaching against glossolalia so misunderstood. It was a very awkward oh. However, I also once preached at Baldface, a church in, um, what's the suburb of the Bald? Blakehurst, yes. And I was preaching on Jesus being the light of the world and there was a massive storm and a complete blackout for the whole area. Just as I was preaching about Jesus coming to the light of the world, it was so dark in the building, we decided we'll just stay there. I kept preaching without notes because uh, I couldn't see anything. No one could see anything because we couldn't see our way out of the building. It was that uh, blacked out. And so there I'm preaching on the light of the world when we really needed some less light. <laughs> But notice what he's saying, children are a toil, aren't they? You know, the, the lost sleep at night. Gee, some, some nights I thought dawn would never come. Some years happened so quickly, I didn't notice that occurred. In fact, the children left home before I was ready. It was so quick. But boy, that, some of those nights, I just, I never thought we'd see another day. It's just so long and torturous and difficult. And then when they're sick, it's so difficult. I, you know, I don't remember. I always feel for my parents who had uh, three boys, but one of them was in hospital for six months and at the same time for polio and then my brother, at the same time I was in the hospital for four months with diphtheria. They didn't own a car back in those days. They didn't, you know, Dad was trying to run a printer shop at that time, etc. How, how do you survive with two kids with life-threatening diseases in hospital for months as it was back in those days? Parenting is tough. You know, that is real. That, that, that's, 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 that's not quick and fair. That's where a lot of, with our grandson having died a year or so ago, a couple of years ago, as you know, we were in and out of the hospital there a lot in the cancer ward. We saw many, many families really being ripped apart by their children's long-term sicknesses and deaths. That's one of the great problems in the, 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 these some often fathers just can't stick <laughs> just won't stick they can they won't they, Luther full of cares full of toils hey but you've been created by God for this <laughs> and what's more God will will teach you to bear these troubles <laughs> and indeed in the bearing of them you grow you become the mature person you're supposed to be you don't grow muscles except in a gymnasium where you're actually pressing against it, when you're fighting against it, isn't it? That's how you do. Let the wife make the husband, this is one that you see in lots of places, this quote, let the wife make the husband glad to come home and let him make her sorry to see him leave. That's a, a common um, parlour uh, thing. Let the wife make the husband glad to come home. Marriage is in trouble, men, and you need to go get help if ever you're driving home and you go slower and slower because you can't face it. Make sure you fix it. That's, that's a real warning sign, that one. And let him make her sorry to see him leave. 
And then, but of course, uxoriousness, he won't leave. See, when the sin of uxoriousness is she makes him so sorry to leave, he won't leave and go preach the gospel. He spends all day in the vicarage because he just likes being with his wife. That's uxoriousness. One learns more of Christ in being married and rearing children than several lifetimes spent in study in a monastery. You see, the realism in this man's view of marriage. Sexual pleasure. But it's more than sexual pleasure. The importance of children, but the burden that's involved in raising children. God's creation and his enabling to fulfil his purposes. It's all there. But the key aspect of all the marriages, and especially that model marriage of every church, the marriage in the rectory, the key aspect is faithfulness. It's faithfulness. Luther sets the model for rectory marriages and we've all benefited from his model. Oh, the joy Satan would have had if the, Lutheran, if the Luthers had failed to fulfil their promises and been faithless. But they stuck it out through their years. Promises to love and submit, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, till death us do part, to stay true only to one and no other. Those famous words of promises that we should all study and remind ourselves of, that we should hear in other people's weddings, reminding us who are already married and teaching those who are not married, according to the prayer book, all require faithfulness. Faithfulness is what a husband has to do. Faithfulness is what a wife has to do. A husband has to love, a wife has to submit, but both of them have to be faithful. It's not love and marriage that, that go together like a horse and carriage, as a 1940s song had it. It's faith and marriage that go together like a horse and carriage. Notice the whole same-sex marriage is about love. Love is love. But that's not what marriage is about. It's about faith. Faith in the promises that you have made and the contract that's established. It's a different concept altogether. But love has been sold to us by Hollywood. And we've accepted it and bribed it rather than teaching the Bible and studying what the scriptures say. Our society, our media, our elites do not understand, do not teach, do not believe in and certainly don't model faith and marriage. It's just not in their worldview. Sadly, Christians have been sucked in to talking of love and marriage all the time, and we've even changed our promises in our liturgy. Badly. Nearly all the changes have been for the worst. Faith is what it's really about. And we don't even understand faith, which is really bad. Uh, I've actually long thought we should get rid of the word faith. It doesn't help us at all. We've got other perfectly good English words that work that mean the same thing as what the Bible means. They are trust, rely, depend. Be true to your word. You've given your promises, you keep your promises. Faith is keeping your promises. That's what faith is. It's not a kind of feeling, it's not an emotion, it's not a, it's, it's, it's not a spiritual thing. It's an everyday thing that people have all the time. It's just what you do. You get on a bus, you trust them. You get in a taxi, you trust the driver. Uh, trust is something you're doing all the time. You go to McDonald's, you trust that they've cooked the food. There's an interesting exercise in trust. That is, trust can be irrational. It can be rational. 
But it's trust. That's what we need. And that's what marriage is about. We're committing our lives to each other and therefore we have to trust each other. Elizabeth Taylor had eight husbands. Well, no, she got married eight times. Once to a couple, twice to the same man, I think. Uh, Mickey Rooney, her other childhood star, he got married eight times too. Um, there is the model of Hollywood for us. However, I heard Mickey interviewed as an old man once. And the interviewer, being a classic Australian person was saying, well, gee, you had all these wonderful, beautiful looking women, you know, and started rattling out the names and Mickey Rooney cut him off and said, yeah, but I made a mistake all the time. It was a terrible thing. I should never have done it. It's ruined my life. The interviewer starts to back off. She said, since I've become a Christian, I've understood that this was totally wrong and I should never have done it. The interviewer started to change subjects very quickly because an Australian interviewer does not know how to cope. He could make funs and dirty double entons about all the beautiful women, but he couldn't deal with someone who's become a Christian. And Mickey Rooney's Christianity was very confused and he died a very unhappy, sad old man, taking out injunctions against some of his children and wives and things like that. The baggage was massive from eight families. It's not surprising. It's not the way to live. But I understand he died in the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly on that occasion, uh, he was an old man at the time, uh, he made a very clear statement of faith on Sydney television, <laughs> which is astonishing. I, I really, I had no idea. But that's the difference, you see. As Elizabeth Taylor makes no such statement. How, how can we conduct ourselves in our marriage, is, how we conduct ourselves in our marriage is one of those areas that puts us offside with the society around about us. They admire it, but they don't believe it. We need to teach the Bible on this and to live the Bible for our own benefit, for our children's benefit, for the congregation's benefit, for the couples we marry's benefit, for our society's benefit, for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. We need to be faithful above all else to our spouse. Emotions may have changed, bodies may have changed, our sexual drives may have changed, our stress levels may have changed, our health may have changed, our, our hairline may have changed. Faithfulness can never change. That's, that is the, the bedrock, it cannot change. And so here we, are, here we then turn to husbands and wives inside the rectory. In the first turn to the Titus 2 passage we read, where advice is given on the basis of sex and age, older, younger, male, female, concerning self-control. I like 1 Timothy 5.1, the older I get, the more I like it. You know, do not rebuke an older man harshly. It's a great verse, that one. Uh, I, I teach it to my grandchildren regularly. But he goes on, so not only do not treat an old, uh, do not that, but he also goes on, encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. That is, you don't treat a person as a person. You treat a person in relationship to yourself. They are older or they are younger, they are male or they are female. And you treat them differently. And that is true. I saw this silly feminist writer the other day. 
she's a, uh, a significant member of our society, so I shouldn't just say, dispense with her like that. She's been a commissioner of sexual, of sexual discrimination in New South Wales and Australia and so on. But it's all about whether women should tolerate men giving them kisses on cheeks and, and so on, because there's some um, ABC woman got kissed publicly and she didn't like it and she ticked the man off and now they're having a fight now whether it's right or not to actually kiss people publicly etc. And this woman finally came up with a conclusion that my grandmother could have told her. That is men must not take the initiative but must wait for the initiative to be taken by the woman. If the woman holds her hand out to you, you shake her hand. If she doesn't, you don't offer your hand. That's the old rules of the 19th century. And it's the same with the kissing on the cheek. If the woman offers her cheek to be kissed, you must. And if she doesn't, you mustn't. But you don't take the initiative. It's very simple. And here's this feminist who's saying men and women are all the same. There's no gender. They're all the same. But now we've got rules on who can take the initiative in a handshake. Well, because we're not all the same. And our relationship is different. And we need to acknowledge the differences between us. Like 1 Timothy 5 does. You look up to your elders. Please note. The eldest man here, you look up to your elders, but you don't look down to your juniors. You treat them as brothers. Right? That's an important Christian principle. Uh, you treat them as brothers. You, you care for women, older women, as if they were your mothers, and younger women with absolute purity. Why do you have to put that in? <laughs> because the temptation is so great for young men. So, Timothy, that is how you're to conduct yourself. Well, Titus 2 divides up people in these categories. But each one of them has to be under self-control. And the word self-control is a sophronizo word. It's got to do with living under wisdom, is the meaning of the word. Uh, I, I think you can, there's a modern English way of saying it, the older women to teach the younger women to wise up. Right? Live under wisdom, be governed by wisdom. Each of you, older, younger men and women, have to live under the wisdom of this kind of self-control. But that is the character of the advice. It's all generalizations. Generalizations are not the same as stereotypes. In general, men are taller than women. That's true. That doesn't mean that every man is taller than every woman, but it is generally true. <laughs> However, just because it's generally true does not mean you, teach, you treat this very tall woman as if she's short that would be to turn the generalization into a stereotype but in our junior groups today generalizations and stereotypes are all just jumbled in together as the same the prayer book of 1662 had vows that differentiated men and women that was very important I don't wear a wedding ring because in the prayer book you don't men don't wear wedding rings according to the prayer book you go ahead, I don't mind. You all watch your wedding rings on, good for you. But, you know, you're just not Anglicans. I'm an Anglican. <laughs> I have the wedding ring, you see. And that's because at that point in the promise, I gave Helen all my worldly goods. She didn't give me any. Which was comical at the time, since she had the money and I had none. <laughs> but whatever I had, I gave to her. That actually sets up the property settlement. It's all hers, I've given it to her. That was my promise. I walk out on this marriage, I walk out with nothing. None of this 50-50 divide stuff. I walk out, I've given it to her. That was the deal. Whereas now, you've got mutual promises, which are actually identical promises. 
you create a, a weddings with mutual identical promises, well, you may as well get two men to marry each other or two women. It won't make any difference because there's no gender difference, is there? The fight over same-sex marriage was lost 30 years ago in liturgical variations in the Anglican Church where we refuse to differentiate between men and women. If there's no differentiation between men and women, well, why not two men? Why not two women? See, it's a, it's, I, I cannot work out how people cannot see the, the plainly obvious. But we've also got caught ourselves on this egalitarian word. It's a dreadful word. Because it means a hundred different things to different people. See, sameness egalitarian is that everything is the same. Well, that's not true. It, it's ridiculous. Um, you now, of course, got these uh, the TERFs that the what are TERFs? They are trans um, gender radical feminists. Uh, that is, they are opposed to all the transgender things. So. The great tennis player Navratilova, who's a feminist, lesbian, heroine, has now been dropped out of the out of the great pictures of great ones because she objects to men who think they're women playing tennis. <coughs> she says it's not fair. <laughs> sorry. Playing tennis in women's, uh, competition. in women's competitions. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you. I left that out. Key part of the element. Thank you. Right. She says, a man's a man, a woman's a woman. I'm not going to play tennis against a man who thinks he's a woman. Right? That's not fair. Now, you know, having 30 years saying there's no difference between men and women, suddenly there is a massive difference between men and women. Of course, sameness is not the same as egalitarianism. Actually, what we've got wrong is the word e equality. We believe in equity. Equity is not equality. <laughs> Equity is being treated fairly and justly. Equality is being treated, well, how? The same? The same in opportunity or the same in outcomes? What do you mean by the same? You see? What do you do about positive discrimination? Because we all positively discriminate in favour of the blind, for example. How does egalitarianism fit in with that unless you're going equal opportunity? But even that doesn't work. UTS, University of Technology in Sydney, now gives 10 ATAR points to any girl who is willing to do STEM studies, uh, science, technology, engineering and maths. So any girl who wants to do that gets 10 points advantages. Given the fact that women are already more mature at the age of uh, uh, of the HSC, given the fact that women outscore the men at the HSC, given the fact that women are 60% of the university students already, they are now getting a 10% advantage if they want to do these particular subjects. Now, the feminists are arguing for that at the same time as trying to tell us that there's no advantage in being a woman. That we're somehow, I mean, it's nonsense. That is being egalitarianism is a nonsense concept that doesn't work in social life, in justice or in social engineering. That's not the word. And so what is good is what is being taught here in 1 Timothy, in Titus 2. Over and over, it's good, it's good, it's good. And it doesn't bring discredit. More of that tomorrow when we're talking about not bringing discredit. The older women are to teach what is good. And so train the younger women, so wise up the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be under wisdom, self-controlled, 
pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. The word for love there, love your husband, is a different word than the word loved in, uh, used in Ephesians 5 and elsewhere. It's to be friendly towards. Um, not all husbands are lovable, that's why you've got to teach women to love their husbands. And not all children are lovable all the time, that's why you need to teach women to love their children as well. Working at home and submission are the two phrases that cause us some small problems, so let me quickly go through those for you. On the working at home issue, the translation, the word is uh, oika ergos, uh, from oikos and ergon. Working at home is to be busy at home. The second thing you need to say about it though is it's, it's, you've got to take into account the social perspective of the past. The housewives of yesteryear of your grandmother's generation were quite different to the model of home worker you see in Proverbs 31. The fact that our society was organised in such a way that women did not need to go to work, in fact couldn't go to work. My mother didn't have a washing machine, she didn't have a vacuum cleaner, she didn't have a refrigerator, she didn't have a car, there were no supermarkets and uh, she had to do the washing by hand in the tub and had to wring it out by hand. She didn't have a hills hoist, she didn't have a lawnmower, but father didn't have a lawnmower. We didn't have... Housework took all week. <laughs> We live in a different world. To say, well, that's what happened then, that's the 50s is the model we should have, is just unrealistic. The woman in Proverbs 31, that's your model, and she certainly worked. She made money, she traded, she did all kinds of things as well, didn't she? The social perspective of the present transition, though, to working women and to dual-income families uh, has, and to the economic necessities for home ownership, is disastrous to us and has been disastrous to our society. We've never been so rich and we've never been so poor and we're eating out the middle class of our cities. I don't know what's happening in the country but in the cities the middle class is being eaten out by the dual income families and the whole process. We, we, didn't, we didn't think out the consequences at all and it's, it really has created disaster. The young adults cannot afford to buy housing and that changes the shape of Australian society profoundly. And then fourthly, the changing valuation of work versus family is all around about us. See, we've become materialists at the extreme, so we've done away with weekends. You do away with weekends, you do away with family time. Family don't matter. Keeping the shops open matter. And so we've downgraded people and relationships and family life. And this materialistic evaluation of the importance then of having a career of, for your self-esteem, for your significance, for your fulfilment. You get it in that incredibly evil phrase, I'm just a mum. Uh, uh, if you ever hear yourself say, you know, I don't know which part of your tongue you should cut off, but the word just does not occur in the phrase a mum. No one is just a mum. A mum is a great thing. <laughs> you know, one of the most wonderful things that has ever been in the history of humanity is a mum. But yet we now put down and the mothers feel they've got to go to work to get significance and importance in our society because only workers have significance and importance in our society. Am I saying women shouldn't work? No, I'm not saying that. 
Bible doesn't say it, I'm not saying it. A woman of Proverbs 31 worked. And to say nothing of the fact that housework is work. <laughs> right? The idea of raising your family is not work, is awful. But they've got this crazy state of life where if a woman works as a nanny looking after somebody else's babies, who works as a nanny looking after her babies, they're both at work. They can go around saying, oh yes, I'm a nanny. <laughs> because they're paid. But you've determined life by being paid. I would have determined life by being loved. Being cared for, caring and loving. That's what matters. Not being paid. But that's where materialism is just rotting us. And rotting our families. On the subject of submission, they've got to be submission to their own husbands. I like it because the word, the word in Greek is idiot. Uh, you've got to be submitting to your own husbands, you're idiot. Um, you see, we've imbibed this uh, egalitarian nonsense, uh, and so we, we're forgetting the importance of equality. We've imbibed the feminist false diagnosis that the problem with the world today is power and power imbalance. Not understanding the difference between power and authority. Not understanding that power is not the problem, but sin. So in the end, the common world view now is patriarchy is evil. Christians can never say that. Because the patriarch from whom all patriarchy has been named is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You pull the plug on patriarchy, you've just pulled the plug on God. That's really an impossibility for a Christian position. Can't do it. Power does not corrupt. It was a Roman Catholic who taught power is corrupt. It was Lord Acton in the 1870 uh, First Vatican Council when they were discussing um, uh, papal infallibility. And he was the devil's advocate who had to put up the argument against it. And he came up with this great phrase, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's wrong. It's completely wrong. Um, papal infallibility was wrong too. But if you think about that for a moment, then God's corrupt because he's got the absolute power, hasn't he? Well, that's not going to work, is it? No, no. Sin corrupts. Power enables you to exercise your corruption. But if you give power to someone who is sinless, he would use it for good. If you give power to someone who's sinful, they'll use it for bad. The problem is not power, the problem is sin. But you see, having got rid of God, we get rid of rebellion against God, therefore we get rid of sin, therefore we've got to have some other explanation for the problems of the world. Power, that's the problem. It's not power, that's not the problem. And so that then provides the background for our two key issues of husbands and wives, husband loving their wives, wives submitting to their husbands, so that they will be living in unity with each other. The husband's love as Jesus and lives with understanding. 1 Peter 3, 7 is a really important phrase. The phrase about living, it's not considerately, living with understanding, her womanliness. The, phrase, the very unusual Greek word, which is only used once elsewhere in the LXX on Genesis 18, 11, where Sarah says, I'm no longer as being a woman. In other words, she's postmenopausal. So it's living with the understanding of the menopausal processes of your wife. 
with the reproductive process of your wife. So I encourage young men to read Llewellyn Jones' book, Every Woman, so that he actually understands what his wife's body is like. Uh, it's not a Christian book. He was a professor of gynaecology at Sydney Uni. But it's a very simple introduction to understand. Men need to understand their wives. We can't, but at least we've got to try as best we can. Because they're our co-heirs of eternal life and it wrecks our prayer lives. And wives, well, we've already dealt with the submission, etc. Because, well, we need... And my brothers and sisters in the rectory, you live with the privacy of your own marriage. I don't know how much sex you're having or not, how you have sex, when you have sex, the character of it. I don't want you to tell me. I mean, if you want to, you need to, then by all means do. But it's privacy, isn't it? But nothing is private. Not in the long run. Because, yeah, we may not know actually how you physically have sex. But in the long run, we'll know that you are or aren't in love and compassion and faithfulness with each other. Because of the way in which you treat each other and set the model of godly marriage. It all comes out in the end. Character will out. And our love and relationships in home will out. You can't ultimately hide it. You can lock the rectory door all you like, you can't hide it. The kids will know it, the congregation will know it. When they see a couple who love each other, they'll know it. And when they see a couple who can't stand each other, they'll know it. You can't hide it. So fix it while you can. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank and praise you for the gift of marriage. We thank you for our husbands. We thank you for our wives who are even with us now. We thank you for the love that we can have for each other, expressed physically in our bodies, expressed in so much more in the ways in which we live. We thank you for the children that you give to us. With the privilege, Father, of bringing another being into this world, and not only into this world, but into eternity. Father, we thank you that you give to us this incredible privilege and we thank you for the joys that are found in family life and yet father we in this fallen world there's so much sorrow and hardship and difficulty and tensions and we pray father for your spirit to keep working in us regenerating us and moving us into sanctifying us so that we will be husbands that the wife will not want to see leave and we'll be Wives, that the husband will be so keen to get home to, to see again. That we'll be those who, living in such faithfulness, will model Christ to the world. And we do pray, Father, that in our marriages, you would give us the ability to repent and the ability to forgive, that we might live in the grace of the gospel. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing, are we? You got the official point. When I say we're going to sing, we're all going to sing, not just you and me. Good. <laughs> Why? You got something against my singing? I do not know. <laughs> um, we're going to sing uh, Yet Not I Christ, but through Christ we're on page seven. You may not be seeing this in your church. Yet, uh, but hopefully it's not an unfamiliar song. So please stand and join in when you can.